Thank you for allowing me back. And uh, in the short amount of time we have, we are going to have a brief session where, thank you, brother, where I will open up God's word and preach. And then after that, uh, we will have a few questions. The ones that are coming in, I've already received two. Let me, uh, I pray that the Lord will help us. Today I'm privileged to be accompanied by more people than last time. Last time my daughter Wendo accompanied me. So today I'm accompanied by my wife Jedida. She's somewhere in the, in the yeah, Jedida is there and uh, with our littlest daughter and our eldest daughter next to them. And then uh, Wendo and James are also there. So our four children are there. But I'm also accompanied by others who are graduates and yet to be graduates of this institution. So Sally is yet to be a graduate 4.2, I think so. And then Chalo. Chalo, you are which year? A graduate of 2016. Chalo is there. And uh, Wes, is Wes somewhere? No. I come from a church that is so privileged to have so many of the graduates of this institution, and they've been so solid that I wonder if it should be a Christian requirement that people come to Jacobat. Uh, we have around 50 graduates of this institution in our church, and our church isn't big. We don't believe in having a very big church. When we get to around 200, we begin thinking of sending away some to go church plant near where they live. And actually, around 15 or 21 will soon be church planting here in Ruiru. Their first service should be on the 31st of July. But the Lord has just been pleased to send us so many of your graduates, and they have been such a blessing. They, they have been a tremendous blessing, and I just praise the Lord for that, and I pray, because part of the reason for having a Christian union, if you look at your purposes in your constitution, is if, if because that was it when Focus helped us to craft our constitutions in our, in our earlier years, the purpose of the CU is to help you to become a responsible church member when you graduate. It is to help you participate in effective global evangelization when you graduate. And so when you're here, know that you will have helped the CU to succeed if in future you are a responsible church member and you participate effectively in global evangelization. Unless the purposes have changed, and I doubt that they have, that's why you're here. You're being equipped for that purpose. Now, getting back to our topic for today, uh, we are having a survey through the book of John. And last week we read chapter 1 and 2. Because of the brief amount of time we have, I had intended we would read chapter 3, 4, and 5, 
but that will take 15 of our 30 minutes. So I'll read other, I still have around four pages of scriptures to read, so we will still read scripture, um, but it won't be chapter 3, 4, and 5 in their entirety. We will read excerpts of the entire book of John. But I think let's first of all pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather once more and to try and wrap our hearts and our minds around the book of 1 John. Oh Lord, we praise your name for the privilege of your word. And may it be, O oh Lord, that as we come to the end of this time, we will with the psalmist truly testify that we so love your law and it will be our meditation all day long. In Jesus' name, amen. The matter of our eternal security, we said last week, is so important that you don't want to play patapotea with it. This is not gambling we are doing here. Each one of us has a soul that will never die. And a hundred years from now, unless it pleases the Lord to grant exceptions to very few of us, we will either be in heaven or we will be in hell. We will either be so beautiful that if someone met us, they would think we are an angel, or we would be so ugly that if someone met us, they would think they've met the devil incarnate. And that's the reality. It is appointed for man to live, and after that to die, and then to be judged. For the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and Philippians 1, verse 21, I think, would tell us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul makes it his own claim. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And having gone through the session last week, it is possible that you may be scared, just wondering, who is sufficient for these things? These things are so challenging. I'm scared of showing up at God's judgment seat. And we say the precise reason why the book of 1 John is written is to help us. 1 John 5.13, the purpose statement of the book is clearly articulated there. And the apostle says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's saying, I am writing not so that you possess eternal life, but that I may confirm to you that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. And that phrase that you may know is repeated 25 times in this particular form or in various nuances in this one book. 
So the apostle is serious about this business of getting to truly know whether you are a sheep or a goat, whether you are wheat or tares, whether you are on the narrow road that leads to eternal life having entered through the narrow gate, or whether you are on the broad road having entered through the broad gate where many are that sadly leads to eternal damnation. He says there in 1 John 5.13, I write. And this reminds us, because what he writes is scripture, isn't it? It reminds us that God has given us the scriptures to help us confirm our salvation, lead us to salvation, and then help us to make our calling and election sure. And then he is writing to you and telling you, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, not so that you may be saved, but so that you may know. In other words, believing is not that which is going to be what would mark out the one who is saved. But the one who believes is the one who is saved. And that I know can be a very complex thing, but these who believe are the ones who are saved. They are they are believing because they are saved. They are not saved first and foremost because they believe. And this would change the way you evangelize. Because those of us who think that you can untwist people into believing have not read Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 clearly says that the sinner is dead in their trespasses. And God is not calling us to beautify the dead. He is calling us to the impossible task of resurrecting those who are dead. These who believe have eternal life. And we say that this book is addressed not to just a few of us, not just the CU leaders or some spiri people in the CU who want to increase in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This book is addressed to each and everyone here. And I read to you last week, and I know I wore you out, and I don't apologize for that. At least 44 citations in this one book that demonstrate that the target of the author is every boy Every girl, rich or poor, young or old, educated or not, whoever without exception. And so we read the verse 4, whoever says, verse 5, whoever keeps, verse 6, whoever says, this is chapter 2, verse 9, whoever says, verse 10, whoever loves, verse 11, whoever hates, Verse 15, if anyone, not if some people, if anyone loves the world. Verse 17, whoever does the will of God. 
and so on and so on. And we saw that throughout the book. It is a book covered with this truth that what's here is not some optional extra for some few people who want to ascend up the spiritual Mount Everest. These are not electives. These are core units. This is not an optional extra. This is an irreducible minimum that we are dealing with here. And we said the book presents to us three litmus tests that we can use to assess ourselves and to assess others and come to the conclusion that they are either born again or not. This is important, friends, for yourself, but it's also important for the Christian Union and ultimately important for the churches where you will serve. Today, what do preachers do? A preacher will preach. He will make an altar call. People will come to the front. They will repeat a prayer after the preacher. And what will the preacher then tell those who have repeated the prayer? You are now born again. And that's a very risky thing to say. Because on what basis would Eric as a preacher be telling you a stranger that you are now born again? And especially here where what Feeney started not so long ago, just around 200 years ago. Because at times we see things in Christendom and we think they've always been there for the last 2,000 years. In church history, there was nothing like repeating a prayer after a preacher. Who is repenting? Is it the preacher or is it the person coming to faith? I don't know your sins. And so easy believism is a very young thing in Christendom. Are there people who have been born again in altar calls? Yes, many. So many. But does that mean we continue the practice when we can't support it in scripture? And especially here, I'm zooming in on the practice of assuring people that they are Christians based on the fact that they've repeated a prayer that was not even theirs. Such people then are added into the church based on only their profession. If you were to add somebody to the church as a true Christian, if you really have a church where you add people who are truly Christians, then First John would be your thermometer. It would be your litmus test. You'd be asking yourself the three tests that we saw Last week, you'd be asking the moral test or the test of obedience. You will be asking the social test or the test of love. And you will be asking the doctrinal test or the test of belief in Jesus Christ. 
All these three tests must be administered to self and to others. So yes, professing, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord is important. It is not a thing to be trifled with. It's not to be removed or separated from assessing whether somebody is a Christian or not. But our Lord, dear friends, has told us that by their fruits you will know them. Do we think we are wiser than him? He says by our fruits we will be known to either be Christians or not. And so we need to realize that this book is helping us to ascertain whether our claim to Christianity is credible or false. It is asking us the question whether our Christianity is consistent, not just in what we proclaim or profess, but also in what we practice. And this evening, before we handle the questions that you are sharing, we will look at the three tests, because, again, the book is done in such a way that John is walking with you as if you are going up a spiral staircase. And so you keep seeing the same thing, but from different angles and in different positions. So it's like you're going up a spiral staircase, and while you're here, you see the moral test, and when you're back up here, you'll see the moral test again, and when you're again at that place, you'll see the moral test. And on this place, you'll see the social test throughout the book. So he keeps repeating in three expositions within the book. Let's look at the moral test, for example, or the test of obedience. He brings it up in... First John chapter 2, verse 3 and 6. There he says, This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. Do I have your translation today well? I, I hope I got it. Yes, I think I got the translation. I wanted to ensure I come with the translation that you have. So First John chapter 2, verse 3 and 6. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Friends, you are intelligent. I don't need to flog that horse. It is clear. Obedience is a test, a litmus test on whether you're a Christian or not. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. Again, from a different position of the spiral staircase, he brings up the same thing. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, 
you know that you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Please keep taking note of the universalities. Everyone, not some people, not just the leaders, but everyone. They may not look like they are your, your standard of the anointed person. But if they do what is right, they have been born of him. Because again, a lot of hulabaloo out there on if you are a Christian, we will know it by you demonstrating that you have special spiritual gifts. Where in the Bible do we get that? It is an act of intellectual dishonesty to embrace some of these things. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Look at how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And now we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 4, everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is a breaking of the law. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Verse 6, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. Verse 9, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because his seed remains in him, he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother. So verse 10 tells you very clearly, you'll be able to know a Christian from a non-Christian by their practice. Do they keep God's law? That's the moral test. Social test or test of love. Second litmus test. And this would be seen in various sections of the staircases, like in chapter 2, verse 7 to 11. John says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It doesn't matter who they are. They could be the most gifted chap here. But if they hate, if they are ethnocentric, if behind the scenes they still look down their nose at particular ethnic groups in this nation, then they, they are walking in the darkness. Or chapter 3, verse 11 to 18. Again, litmus test here. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. Look at verse 15. Everyone, not some people, not some special people, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing right now in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If, some people, no, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but does, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? Little children, we must not love with word or speech, but with the truth and action. Chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, again, six uh, verses there. Five verses that would be a litmus test for love. Dear friends, let us love one another. Because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Friends, I feel I, I, I just need to move on. Or anyone needs to be convinced further. It's plain. I'm not I'm twisting this. I've even labored to ensure I use the translation that you are using here. Verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Doctrinal tests or test of belief in Jesus Christ. This is wide, but I still need to read it. Doctrinal test, because this is important. Chapter 2, verse 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. We know that we know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar? If not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, this one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming and is already in the world now. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. Who are from God? Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. For this we know, from this we know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of deception. There's quite a bit there, but I can tell you, for example, verse 6 says, one of the ways you can know whether you are legit as a Christian is what you listen to. If you are refusing to listen to the faithful apostolic truth, because the apostle is saying anyone who listens to, to the apostolic truth, to us, he says there, anyone who knows God listens to us. Do you see that in verse 6? Anyone who is not from God does not listen to the apostolic truth. They'll refuse it. They'll say it's old-fashioned, imepitwa nawakati, and we are too intelligent to listen to the once-for-all truth that has been handed over to the church. Then there are sections that will have a combination of moral and social tests, and then I could read one that actually has moral, social, and doctrinal tests. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. In those five verses, you will see a combination of the moral, social, and doctrinal tests. See this. Watch out on this. Everyone, chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. So what test is that? Doctrinal test. Okay, we are pacing together. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. That's doctrinal test. Look at the next test. 
and everyone who loves the father also loves the one born of him. What test is that? Social test. In other words, if you are truly born again as a Christian, you will love those whom the father has saved. You will meet a fellow Christian for the first time and your hearts are just knit together. And you are out in the mission field somewhere so far, but you meet these brethren. And just the fact that you share the same father, you feel at home with them. You travel across borders, go to another country, and you meet a brother or a sister in the Lord, and there is joy in your heart. Because everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Social test. Verse 2. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. You see moral test? So he's saying there, this is how you know you're a Christian. Do you love God's people? And do you obey God's commands? So there is something here in the book of 1 John that is upward, horizontal, and inward. What's your belief about God? Is it founded on scripture? Or has it been hammered out in the anvil of some human being's mind? Is it found in scripture? Is it the truth? And then what's your attitude towards fellow man? And then what's your inward attitude towards God's command? He says in verse 3, for this is what love, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now his commands are not a burden. He's saying for the Christian, the commands of God are not a scary impossibility. They are a glorious possibility. His commands are not a burden. Duty for the Christian becomes delight. There is something that has happened in our hearts. Our hearts of stone have been taken away and we've been given a heart of flesh and now we love God. And finally there you'd read in verse 4, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. We conquer the world. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, we conquer it. Because he who lives in us is the one who has defeated death. If you have defeated death, surely you will defeat the world. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I would stop there, brothers and sisters. I could make this address more charismatic and more appealing to your heart. But if you are of the truth, you have seen what I've said, and you will go back, hopefully with a barren heart and attitude, and interrogate what I have said. And if there be any lie, contrary to God's word, disobey it. 
But if what I have brought to you today is founded on the scriptures, then obey it. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The first question that I have coming to us today is, which sin leads to death and which one does not lead to death? Why should we pray for those who commit sins that do not lead to death and not for the ones that lead to death? So this question comes from chapter 5. The person has not given the verses, but he's gotten them from chapter 5 of John. Verse 16. John there is saying, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now this is a complex part, one of the very complex parts of this book. This would be my presentation to respond to that question very briefly. The wages of sin is death, isn't it? And we know that the smallest sin is such an offense to the thrice holy God that it is an act of cosmic treason. The slightest of sins would condemn anyone to hell. But here we see that even though all sin would lead to death, there is a particular kind of sin that does not lead to death. Surely what is different is not the sin, but the one who commits the sin. Scriptures say holiness without which no one will see God but the first and most foundational holiness that we rely on for us to see God is not our own holiness. It is the holiness of, of, of Jesus Christ. Ukigonga mlango ya mbinguni, ifunguliwe, alafu ulizwe unataka, and then you say, I want to enter. And then you, you ask, have you ever sinned? Yes, I have sinned. You are lost. It's the other door. And you say, no, me, I'm not, I'm not going to the other door. I know what's happening behind there. I'm entering this one. Allow my, my license, my, kindly just allow me to have that license of, of creating that picture. On what grounds would you insist on entering heaven? That you walked in front and repeated a prayer after a preacher. You think that would be sufficient? On what grounds? You attended Keshas. What would be your grounds, friends? You would say the one who is in there, his name is Jesus Christ. Alinifungua macho. Nikaona utakatifu wa mwenyezi mungu. Sindio? That's where it starts. Salvation doesn't begin with you. It starts with you seeing the holiness of God and seeing your bankruptcy as a sinner. And saying, woe is me, I am undone. And then the Lord opens your eye and you see 
the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. And you flee to Christ. Isn't it? And from that time onward, whenever God looks at you, he sees you in Christ. Now, the sin that does not lead to death, my friends, would be a sin committed by those who are truly born again. Because the one who is born again, to our embarrassment and to our shame, this side of eternity, do sin. But we do not live in sin. We do not make a practice of sin. We occasionally sin and we repent. Such a person, if you see a believer sinning, one who is a true believer, pray for them, the Lord will restore them. But the one who is not a believer, the solution is that you preach the gospel to them. You just preach the gospel to them. Because otherwise, the Catholic practice of praying for the dead would make sense. If you can pray for the non-believer and their sins are forgiven, then you can as well pray for them even after they are dead. So that's how I would look at it. The, the difference is the committer of the sin. The true believer sadly sins. If you notice them sinning, pray for them. But Paulie, John is saying, I'm not asking you to pray for the one who has rejected Christ. That one, the solution for their sin is not you praying for their sin. It's them being born again. Present the gospel to them. Uh, question two, in regards to 1 John 1.10 and 1 John 3.8-10. Are we then sinners who have received Christ? So 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Then First John 3, 8 to 10 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his father. There is a difference. In First John Chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, we are dealing with somebody who makes a practice of sinning, and clearly, sin still reigns over them. But a Christian, sin does not reign over a Christian. Sin remains in us until we are glorified, but it does not reign over us. Okay? And so, would it be Romans 8, Romans 8, 13? Romans 8, 13, I think so. I would, I would read it in your translation. It calls us to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, if we will live. And if we don't, mortify the deeds of the flesh, we will die. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Now surely on this side of eternity, sinners are alive, isn't it? So what life are we talking about? And on this side of eternity, Christians die. So what death are we talking about? This is ultimate death, ultimate life. If you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. You are going to go to hell. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, and that's eternal life. So, so the Christian is a sinner who needs Christ throughout. And that's why in 1 John chapter 3, almost 50, 60 years after John was born again, verse 1, he is still saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. This is not a new believer. He is writing this when he is almost 100 years old, but he has never outgrown the amazing grace. We sing amazing grace with, while yawning, with no sense of amazement. But John was not like that. He never forgot how great a sinner he was. And even though he was an old man, he's saying, Behold, surprise, surprise, be shocked, see, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called children of God. And then Anasemasi Jina too, indeed we are. It's like you are adopted into a family. Nasio tuati ukona papers, ata DNA in badilika. That doesn't happen. Usually if you adopt somebody into your family, their DNA is not your DNA, isn't it? But him is saying, we indeed are. And we are with an exclamative. You are seeing it. He's shocked. We are. Ukitutoa uende kufanya DNA test, tutapata sini watoto wa mungu. Final question. What is the purpose of altar calls? I believe many people who do altar calls mean well. They come from a perspective that believes that there is some residual good remaining in the sinner after the fall that they are able to make a decision to accept Jesus Christ. And if we manipulate them well enough with all eyes closed, with some sweet music going on, they'll walk to the front. Okay? And it's around a 200-year practice that Feeney uh, basically perfected. But friends, we were dead in our trespasses before we became Christians. As dead as a dodo. Imagine Lazarus deciding, I'm going to, I'm going to come forth without Christ calling him. It just doesn't work. So the Christian is born again because God calls them. And scripture abounds with terms like predestination, election. Philippians 1.6. Who began the work? Who began the good work in you? Paul says, I am confident in this. He who began the good work in you. Salvation is not a thing you start. If you have believed, it is because God has saved you. You are regenerated for you to believe. You are woken up, and then you begin seeing things that, 
or you think it's intellectual. How many people with degrees behind their names, they are like thermometers, don't, don't understand what we are talking about here. There are so many. It's not an intellectual affair. God takes away our hearts of stone, gives us hearts of flesh. We hear the word being preached. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift, friends. Ephesians 2 is very clear. Ephesians chapter 2 would say, we are saved by grace through faith, and even that faith is a gift from God. So we owe it all to God. And the God who cannot fail, we are told here, if he has saved you, he will sanctify you, and he will glorify you. And that's the message of Romans 8. And we tremble and we, we stumble. But ultimately, if you are a child of God, he says in his word clearly, of all that the Father has given me, I have lost some, none. Christ will lose none whom he saves. And again, these are facts in scripture. So when you quote this, it's not about a building project. This is about salvation. And Paul is saying, anajua, yule ambaye ameanzisha hii kazi maisha ni mwako, ataikamilisha. O Jude, finally, in conclusion, Jude, verse 24, would remind us of that fact, and then I'll pray. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I've merely scratched the surface of the book of First John. I hope I have interested you in reading it. I hope one of the things you leave these two expositions with is an appreciation of the fact that the books of the Bible have a purpose. So Titus was written for a purpose. First Timothy, there is a purpose statement in there. Check it out. We saw in John, uh, was it chapter 20, verse 30, that the gospel of John has a purpose, so that you may believe. And here, First John, so that you may enjoy your faith. May the Lord strengthen us. I am weak, and I rely only on the Lord Jesus Christ to make it to the end. But he is faithful. He cannot fail. And I invite you, friends, I invite you, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay, so this is an altar call. I invite you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, look up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look up to me. I have nothing to offer you. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any who goes to him, he will not cast out. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, just looking at these beautiful faces here and thinking that many of them are born again is a great joy. One that would cause us to choke our tears, tears of joy. Lord, who are we that you should be mindful of us? If we are righteous, we don't improve you. If we reject you, you don't become less of God. And yet, Lord, in spite of the fact that we are a people with feet of clay, from before eternity you loved us and chose to save us. Oh, such amazing love. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would never forget how great sinners we are and how great uh, a gracious God you are. We thank you for those of us who are born again. And we please pray for those who are here who have heard the truth of your word either this evening or in times past and they know it is true and they know that if they die right now they would go to hell that Lord you would cause them this evening to seek you to repent of their sins and to rely only on the Lord Jesus Christ for their spiritual well-being please Lord grant that none of yours would be lost. That all of yours who are banished would be brought into your sheepfold, even this evening. And Lord, we look forward to that day when our faith will become sight. Until then, Lord, we purify yourself, ourselves as you are pure. We believe in Jesus Christ and we shun false teaching. And Lord, we commit to love one another as we love ourselves, yes, even as you have loved us. This is your commandment, O oh Lord, to us, that we love one another and that our joy may be full. Please meet my brothers and sisters at their various points of need. I'm not so sure where they are in the semester, maybe exams, maybe cuts, some maybe receipts, Others may be even final receipt with the risk of being discontinued. Lord, you know everyone here. Please meet us at those points of need. And Lord, now that I've had an opportunity to stand here before this brethren, I thank you for the many whom you have saved over the years from this CU. And Lord, I thank you for the many whom you have brought into our fellowship at Trinity Baptist Church. Please grant that many, many other churches would also have the blessing of responsible church members from this union. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.